Welcome everybody, I'm Richard Krauss. Hope you're staying happy, I hope you're staying safe, and I hope that you're staying healthy. We have a big show planned for you today. And I know I say that every single week, but this week the show is so gigantic that if it was any bigger, you'd need two radios to listen to it. A little bit later on, we have a legend, a Canadian legend, a science fiction legend stopping by. William Shatner joins me to talk about his new film. It's called Senior Moment, and it goes to VOD next week. And then Jessica Bruder. She was the journalist who drove more than 15,000 miles in a camper van on a mission to follow the wanderers who would become the stars of her 2017 book, Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century. That book, of course, became the Oscar-nominated film Nomadland. And Jessica is here today with Bob Wells. He's a real-life nomad, a guy that travels the country looking for work, looking for community, and he's also one of the stars of the film. They'll be here in just a little while. First up, though, if you love records like The Joshua Tree, Wrecking Ball, and Time Out of Mind, well, you know my guests work. Daniel Lenoir has an incredible resume. His work as a producer for U2, Peter Gabriel, Amy Lou Harris, Bob Dylan, the Neville Brothers, Robbie Robertson, and Neil Young, among so many others, led Rolling Stone magazine to say his unmistakable fingerprints are all over an entire wing of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Here's a little taste of his work. Daniel Lanois has moved back to Canada and launched the brand new Maker Series imprint out of his Toronto-based recording studio. First up in the Maker Series is a solo record called Heavy Sun soulful, joyous album recorded in Los Angeles and Toronto that fuses classical gospel and modern electronics. He says the intent of the music is to lift people's spirits. Let's get to know Daniel Lenoir. Well, first of all, congratulations on the new music. Thank you very much. Uh, a lot of blood, sweat, and tears went in there, so thank you for paying attention to our work. Let's start, though, with the question I think that everyone has been asking one another when they're speaking for the first time in the last year or so. How has the pandemic been treating you? Well, the uh, part of what we do has not changed. You know, uh, Wayne Lorenz and I are still in the studio. Uh, um, he helped me with the uh, Heavy Sun record, and that bumped into the pandemic. Uh, we came to Toronto and carried on with that, and now I've moved on to a new composition. So the, the studio part of things hasn't changed that much. Obviously, we're not having orchestras in, but I don't know that we ever had those people in. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk then about the Makers series. This is something new. Heavy Sun is the first release on it, but it's more than just uh, a record label. It's more than just releasing a, a Daniel Lanois album every now and again. You have uh, a multimedia idea for this, right? Well, it's clear to me now that uh, my work comes in chapters and on looking back I realized that there's usually a three or four year block of any uh, at a given time that will produce a certain kind of result and there'll be some sort of 
alignment, philosophical alignment to the, the work of that chapter. So I'm anticipating such a chapter com to come, and the Heavy Sun record is the first of that. I'm working on an instrumental piano record now that I'm hoping will be part of that. And uh, we have a term, fresh out of the oven, so wouldn't it be nice if we were able to make things available to folks as they came to us, even if it means uh, you know, the foresight of, of, uh, of a compilation of sorts or an album to come. You know, we may have two or three titles, and we hope, keep our fingers crossed, that we will keep going, and there'll be some, some kind of uh, synchronicity at play that'll, be, that'll end up being a body of work. I hear from, uh, I mean, the word on the street is back in the day, Stevie Wonder only put out a record when somebody said, Stevie, we got to put something out. So he would just, whatever he had going at the time is what made it on an album. So we're trying to get back to the Stevie Wonder ways. <laughs> yes, there is. Uh, we just finished a film for the Heavy Sun record. The song is called Way Down, written by Rocco DeLuca, Johnny Shepard, and myself. Um, and... Uh, we made a nice film, and the and the images for that film are mine. And I work with a friend. I start with still images, photographs, and I have a way of manipulating them in such a you know so that they they become more collage-like. And then my friend Adam Bollock puts them into motion. So we now have motion picture, and we're very excited about this because um, I see it as an extension of my artistry. Um, I love music first and foremost. But we've always been driven by by images. So the, after as the films come our way, then we will, at least have them as an attachment to the songs that we're making, and there might be a bigger future to all of this. Uh, we don't know for sure yet. But, I mean, why does anybody go to the theater? They want to be entertained for an hour and a half. And so, uh, could we be, in the club? I'm not a script writer in the, in the Hollywood Hills, but we are smart and we love images and maybe we could come up with something that would touch a lot of hearts that lasts an hour and a half. You talk about touching hearts. Uh, I think of the music that's on Heavy Sun and it is joyful. And I wonder if that is a response to the pandemic of putting something positive out into the world, something that will make people feel better if that was part of your mindset going into this? Well, it gets said that artists have uh, something premonitional built into them. Uh, nobody forecasted a pandemic. Uh, the Heavy Sun record was largely finished before the announcement of the pandemic, but we did feel that we, we had something that might just bring a bit of joy to people's lives uh, in the absence of such a problem. Uh, and now, uh, as people are more isolated than before, they might find another dimension of joy in this body of work that beyond what we had expected. You're listening to my interview with Daniel Lanois. Find his solo album, Heavy Sun, wherever you legally download or buy music. Now, you talk about being a young man, and there wasn't a lot of money around, so your family had to sort of self-entertain. And when I was listening to this music, uh, I, I heard organ music or organ sounds. There's definitely a gospel uh, influence here. Um, is that reach, you reaching way back to when you were a child 
And in Quebec, listening to church music, listening to probably some Acadian music, uh, and, and sort of mixing and mashing all that up in your head? Well, there's no doubt about neighborhood music and the power of it. Um, as a child, I heard a lot of uh, fiddling. My, my dad played the fiddle, as my gr- grandfather did. And on my mom's side, we had a lot of singers. And they were just uh, you know neighborhood singers, and they'd, they'd uh, sing some of the old favorites at parties and so on. Uh, people didn't go out much in those days because they couldn't afford to, so they would just congregate in houses. So what we know in modern times as house parties, they were happening back then. So I had a little bit of hillbilly in it, you might say. Um, and the music that comes from those houses will be, will have a great sense of purpose to it beyond industry. And so a lot of that got in under my skin as a young man. And in regards to the organ, no, we didn't have organ in those days. It would have been more piano and fiddle. But I recognized that with uh, the meeting of Johnny Shepherd, that certainly organ came from his neighborhood as he was the choir director and organist for the Zion Baptist Church in Shreveport, Louisiana. And so the maybe the, the worlds collide at a certain point, and whatever I brought to the table from what I remember as a child, you know, from my neighborhood experience, uh, Johnny certainly brought it to us uh, from, uh, from church, from the Baptist Church. Uh, Rocco DeLuca came up singing around the house. His pops was a great guitar player. And uh, for that matter, Jim Wilson, our fourth member, um, is a musicologist. So all, all of these forces combined has, has made uh, Heavy Sun, this vocal group, four-part harmony group. I, I think of when you talk about the different kinds of music that come together on this and you talk about growing up, uh, I grew up in Nova Scotia. And so... Uh, you are surrounded by this Celtic tradition of music, but you would go to the local tavern to see a band and the opening band might be a heavy metal band or an acoustic folk band. Then the headliner mm-hmm. would be a, 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 an Acadian, you know, Celtic kind of sound. And everyone would stay for the entire night because music was music was music to them. And I kind of love that. And that's sort of the vibe that I felt when I was listening to this. And then I was reading about how you grew up and the different styles of music and the, 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 the mingling on this record of acoustic sounds with electronic sounds and sort of straddling the gap between those two. I think that's something that gets embedded in you early and, and just never goes away. Well, I like what you're saying, you know, in regards to uh, the melange that we all grew up with. I mean, programming, uh, according to demographic and advertising, that's something that, uh, you know, the radio industry invented. Um, but if, you know, if variety is the spice of life, then of course we love all kinds of things. You know, I'm, I like listening to solo violin. I like a big orchestra. I like hip hop. I like funk. I like soul. I like so much. I like the best of everything. And that's what life should be about. Uh, but we are living in times of... Um, you know, compartments and boxes, and there's nothing wrong with that, but let's all be reminded that we came up with an, all, an awful lot of uh, inspirations, and I had all kind of heroes that I looked up to. You know, I, I liked Brian Wilson when I was a kid, but I also liked Jimi Hendrix and so on, and uh, who could say no to the Motown era? And uh, But then Ravi Shankar came out of them, and then that was tiptoeing through the tulips. So, le grand mélange, mon ami. Work so hard, work so hard, work so hard. 
it is interesting when you uh, listen to this record and other records that you've produced, you hear little bits of all those influences. I think of Peter Gabriel's Sledgehammer, which when I heard that record, I thought it sounds like Peter Gabriel singing, but it sounds like he's singing like a Marvin Gaye song or something. And I hadn't heard that before. And I assume that perhaps maybe you were someone that helped push him in that direction. Well, I can't take credit for Peter Gabriel's great singing, but uh, I'll take credit for being his friend and and uh, and a cheerleader and curator. Ultimately, you know, we spent a great year working on that record that you're talking about. It's called So. And Sledgehammer was part of it, and we just had a lot of fun making that album. We'd show up for work, and I had a, I had a sort of a work regime and policy. You have to wear a hard hat to show up at work. So we all had these yellow hard hats on, and, and we'd say, okay, let's hit it like a sledgehammer. And that's how we went to work, and the song became Sledgehammer. <laughs> yeah, well, Peter's... Peter's one of the greats, so Peter, if you're out there, man, I love you. <laughs> producing yourself, I mean, it's obviously different when you're producing yourself than you are if you're producing Bob Dylan or Peter Gabriel, whoever it might be, um, but is it harder to be objective when you are, are, are when your name is, on, is going to be on the album? The answer, yes, it's harder to be objective if, if the limelight is going to be, uh, the spotlight is going to be on me. But lucky, luckily, I have mates around me that that uh, keep me going straight. Uh, the great Wayne Lorenz, who's sitting a few feet from me now, um, is a, a man of great taste, and he cares about me and cares about the music that we make. So if I'm about to step into a sand trap or I'm maybe about to sink into the tar pit, he might throw me a... <laughs> He might throw the life raft. <laughs> but uh, self-production, and in regards to, you know, the specifics of Heavy Sun, I do have three other mates that I sing with, and they're all good singers. And so if something, uh, we won't leave it alone until it rings true. So, uh, the, you know, they, the, you and, know. And the, when do you know that? A lot of people uh, would ask me, I, I've written a number of books, and, and people ask, when do you know it's done? Uh, and, I, and, and as a writer, I, I, I instinctively know, I think. As a songwriter, as a producer, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I think that I would be tinkering with that song yeah. or sound until they ripped yeah. it out of my cold, dead hands. Well, we're operating with a very slippery medium. Uh, we have the luxury of changing our minds because we're not building bridges here. Uh, a day in the studio of chasing maybe a sidebar or a byproduct of something that we thought was the main part of the picture might take us to a very interesting place by 5 o'clock. So we, uh, we chase all kind of ideas. And, you know, there might be a, a plan that makes a lot of sense on paper. Um, but if we don't get to a magic place with that plan, then there are many plan Bs that come our way. We, I just call them byproducts or... Maybe it's a little jam session that produces a, a riff or a, uh, somebody walks in with uh, having had a big night or a sad night, a happy night, and th the little story they tell might make very well make its way into the new song. You're listening to my interview with Daniel Lenoir. Find his album, Heavy Sun, wherever fine music is sold. This record, Heavy Sun, was recorded partially uh, in Los Angeles and then brought back and finished up here. Your studio in L.A. is a house from the 1920s. The studio that you're sitting in right now in Toronto, I understand, is an old Buddhist monastery. Um, you have recorded, I know, in castles. Uh, 
Uh, you remix songs in the back of a big Cadillac, I've heard. I've... <laughs> well, well, tell, tell me about the surroundings and how important they are for you. Because when I think of a studio, I think of a, a studio. I, I think of an office building that you open a door and you walk in and you're in a, a studio yeah. surrounded by baffles and, and speakers. Yeah. <laughs> Clearly, that's not the way you work. Well, for, uh, to get one thing straight, I like the formal studio. I like, you know, the the hallways with, you know, half a dozen rooms and, you know, maybe a different bands making different records in different rooms. So that's okay. There's somebody at reception and they send send up for sandwiches. And and uh, you can say, hold my calls. So that's all good. Uh, and I've made plenty of records in places like that. But we came up through an exciting chapter of travel. Um, you referenced the castle with the guys in U2, and that was exciting because it got us out of town. And it meant that the, you know, uh, given that the Battle of the Boyne was fought 100 yards from, from where we were singing, uh, some of that makes its way into your record. We went to New Orleans because uh, I wanted to hear the bass that I love. I wanted to hear the source of the bass, that I, a lot of the bass that I've loved, and the horn playing and the piano players. I wanted all that because... French-Canadian culture offered a lot melodically and, you know, uh, we're pretty good with storytelling in Canada, but the South had something else for me. So travel broadens scope, education, and you just might pick up, you know, by proximity, pick up a little bit of something, flavors along the way. We're not looking for reinventions as we travel. We're just looking to bump into how other people live. I think that travel... And I think that songwriting have uh, the one major thing in common. Well, they probably have a few things in common, but I think that they are both little machines for empathy and telling stories when you go out, when you travel and you see how other people live, it opens your mind. Uh, it makes you realize that we all just want the same things. We all want a safe place for our family to be and all that kind of thing. I think that songs are little machines for empathy. So maybe what you're saying here is by traveling around, it, it, it feeds the music in a, in a way that perhaps wouldn't be such if you were just recording in the same studio day in and day out. Well, that's probably the good thing about travel, of course. Uh, and I've always known that about myself, that I might read a story in the newspaper. But if, you know, if I've been to Fez, Morocco, as I have, I understand, you know, the you know, what life is like in the old Medina and the hardships and, but also the beauty of, of ancient artisan culture. Um, we here in Canada, you know, we, we can, if we don't like a job, we move on to another and, and we can keep bouncing around for a while until we find something that's special to us. But in those more ancient cultures like Fez, Morocco, somebody might be a wood carver and that's it, a wood carver for a lifetime because there's no bouncing around to do. It's not that easy. So, you know, you're obviously exposed to a, a, another level of commitment. I'm not saying it's better or worse, but it's certainly different. And I admired uh, the folks in Fez, Morocco, as I've admired the folks in Mexico and other places that I've been to. I was touched by the restrictions and the, the accomplishments. Were you wearing your hit-making shoes when you uh, were making Heavy Sun? My feet have gotten bigger. And so my hit-making shoes that I wore in the 80s, they don't quite fit anymore. But I found a cobbler that can replicate them, so I'll let you know. <laughs> but for those who are curious about this, they were powder blue, um, 
uh, Italian, high-end Italian shoes with a nice square toe because I have square feet. And so the uh, I, I wouldn't take them off. I, uh, I, was, I became superstitious after a while. I, I wouldn't make a record without them. But uh, here we are. I'm, a, I'm up to a size 15 security guard boot right here in Toronto, so just to deal with the snow. <laughs> you didn't really start writing songs until you were 30 years old. And when I think of all the songs that you are connected with, both as a producer and then as a songwriter and your solo albums and now Heavy Sun, uh, why wait till 30 when you obviously have this music in you uh, to express yourself in that way? I don't know if there's an easy answer to that question other than I was building my skills as a guitar player and as a studio uh, studio rat. Uh, <laughs> um, and my skills just kept getting better and better. And uh, I didn't think that... Uh, I just didn't write songs before that. Perhaps I didn't feel I had lived enough life. And But when I did start writing songs, I had plenty to draw from. I traveled more at that point, and away from Canada, so I was able to go back to the, the Canadian stories, you know, the what happened to me coming up, and so that's what I wrote about on my first record, but, you know, that, that might be a decade's worth of experience wrapped up in one record. Did you learn anything from Rick James when he came and recorded with you in your mother's basement in Hamilton? I think we had one Beethoven record in the house, but the Rick James experience exceeded that. I was in the presence of a master, great drummer, bass player, songwriter, singer, background harmony, piano, everything. I can't say enough about Rick. He came to me as an incredible force from Buffalo, New York, and we were on the Canadian side, not far from Buffalo, and Eddie Roth, a mutual friend, uh, suggested Rick come to my mom's basement and record because there was something shaking down there. Um, I don't know what to say, man. It's, you know, imagine I was a teenager. Imagine working with Rick James or someone like Stevie Wonder at that age. There's That's a PhD rolled into one session. And the reverberations of it are still being felt today on Heavy Sun and probably through everything else that you've made since then. <laughs> uh, Daniel, thank you so much uh, for spending some time with me today. Lovely to meet you on Zoom and may the music keep coming our way. Thank you. That was Daniel Lenoir. You can find his album, Heavy Sun, wherever you buy fine music. And trust me, it's a treat. Now let's meet Jessica Bruder and Bob Wells. If you've been paying attention to films that have been nominated for all kinds of awards this year, Nomadland has to be on your radar. It is the story of a woman whose life is turned upside down. She hops into a van and becomes a modern-day nomad, traveling across the United States following the work and the weather to try and find a community that she can call her own. Jessica Bruder wrote the 2017 book Nomadland, Surviving America in the 21st Century, which the Oscar-nominated film is based on, and Bob Wells, who appears in the film, is a real-life nomad. I caught up with them recently. What the nomads are doing is not that different than what the pioneers did. Hey, Fern! You gotta make the hole bigger. The <laughs> I think Fern's part of an American tradition. Uh, Jessica, I'm gonna start with you uh, and ask you why you think that your book, Nomadland, and now the film uh, and its depiction of an itinerant lifestyle has really sparked the imaginations of so many people. Yeah, I think a lot of people wonder about what it would be like to live in a completely different way. And mm. I think it's also 
a group of people who in some ways were hidden in plain sight. And I think there's a natural human curiosity to want to want to understand that. It's the reason I'm obsessed with subcultures, the idea that within the broader world, there are many smaller hidden ones. We not only accept the tyranny of the dollar, the tyranny of the marketplace, we embrace it. Uh, we gladly throw the yoke of the tyranny of the dollar on and live by it our whole lives. I think of an analogy as a workhorse. The workhorse that is willing to work itself to death and then be put out to pasture. And that's what happens to so many of us. And Bob, you are uh, both in the movie and in real life uh, a, a nomad. I understand though, according to the book, that you had to be kind of dragged into the lifestyle uh, in the very beginning. Uh, was there a moment when everything clicked for you and you began to enjoy, well, there must have been, but what was that moment when you started to realize that this was the lifestyle for you? I was forced into it by a divorce. I couldn't afford two normal households. Uh, so I moved into a van to have one very, very cheap household. Um, and it was a, it was a slower transition. There was, I don't believe there was any one moment. However, uh, I do remember very well the first month I didn't have to pay rent. That was a significant moment. And that moment continued to happen every 30 days. And those accumulations of every 30 days when I put that money in my pocket, yeah, that added up. That was powerful. You're listening to my interview with Jessica Bruder and Bob Wells of Nomadland. Find the film streaming on Star via Disney Plus on April 9th. And Jessica, for you, uh, the book is largely about retirees, but in since the book has come out and now with the popularity of the film, the hashtag van life has really taken off. Why do you think that there are more and more uh, people drawn to this? And how many people do you think that are drawn to it would actually take the next step and, and, and adapt or adopt this lifestyle? Sure, I definitely can't quantify that. I think everybody will make that decision on, on their own terms. But I do think we're seeing more and more younger people who feel that the economy is rigged, uh, mm -hmm. just in the way that, that older people feel that and have experienced that. that People don't want to go into student debt to get out of college and take a job that won't allow them to, you know, shovel out of that debt. There are other people who are just giving up on that system altogether and seeing that it, it doesn't work for people. And more and more, I hear older people on the road saying they talk to younger people who say, we don't want to end up in exactly the same situation you did if they ended up forced out. And so we're starting to see that mix on the road for sure. You are one of those lucky people that can travel anywhere. Yes, ma'am. And they sometimes call you nomads. My mom says that you're homeless. Is that true? No, I'm not homeless. I'm just houseless. Not the same thing, right? No. And Bob, uh, for you, this has been such a, a terrible year and devastating year for so many people. Uh, during the pandemic, are you seeing more people than usual turning to the lifestyle? Yes, definitely more coming out. However, it's still a, uh, I think there'll be a tidal wave, but the government's put so much money into the economy that's propping it up. I think the real tidal wave is still to come. Uh, but yes, no question, many more coming out. And Jessica, we have to talk about the film. 
uh, a little bit. Tell me about uh, the the reaction that you had when you first saw Nomadland on the screen. It's such a beautiful film. Uh, we're seeing now as we get into award season, it's getting so much attention. Uh, what were your initial reactions? Oh, I choked up. I choked up and I also had this insane feeling of deja vu. I've been under COVID lockdown and suddenly to see the road, to see all these places that became dear to me in years of reporting, to see them shared with us by an just an amazing guy, Francis McDormand, mm -hmm. and to see Bob and Linda and Swanky and people I'd spent so much time hearing their stories and writing them down, to see them speak those stories on the screen, it, it was incredibly moving. It really did take my breath away. Now that the book is done, the movie's out, uh, where are you at now? Um, where am I at? Well, I'm sitting in one place, like a lot of people, I'm grounded. Um, so in terms of my participation, for me, it's really about the people and that I, I, I'm a human being. When I report on people, I have these sources and they've become friends because I've been talking with and about them for so long. So that's uh, the extent of my participation right now. My van is temporarily grounded in a friend's backyard in Reno. It's been savaged by field mice, and I can't wait to clean it out when the world opens up again. Well, thank you both very much. Uh, congratulations on the book, the success of the film, uh, and everything that goes on with this. And, and uh, we'll hopefully talk to you again soon. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks very much. One of the things I love most about this life is that there's no final goodbye. I've met hundreds of people out here, and I don't ever say a final goodbye. Let's just say, I'll, I'll see you down the road. That was my interview with Jessica Bruder and Bob Wells of the film Nomadland. You can find Nomadland streaming on Star via Disney Plus on April 9th. Have a look. It's a really great film. William Shatner's career is so epic, it spans generations. Some will remember him as the iconic Captain James T. Kirk of the USS Enterprise. Others know him as the veteran police sergeant in T.J. Hooker. Still others think of him as the host of the reality-based television series Rescue 911, or the big giant head from Third Rock from the Sun, or as attorney Denny Crane in both the final season of the legal drama The Practice and its spin-off Boston Legal. He's an actor, an author, a singer, and now he's the star of Senior Moment, a new rom-com on VOD this week. The romantic comedy focuses on Shatner's character Victor, a retired pilot whose life goes into kind of a tailspin when he loses his driver's license. But it starts looking up when he finds love with a character played by Gene Smart. I caught up with William Shatner via Zoom from his home in Los Angeles. They take his license away, mm -hmm. and that's like taking your youth and your all the promise that's left in your life away. So I drive cars a lot. I ride horses a lot. I mean, if they took my driver's license away here in Los Angeles, they would they would force me to stay home because there's nowhere else. You know, you can only walk so far. Uh, so you you would lose your youth. So the idea of losing my license is terrifying. You know, if the judge said, I'm sorry, Shatner, you're too old to drive a car. And that's what they say to this character. So I, it really was interesting to me to, to see how to work it out, how the authors would work this out. And the way he finds a new life as a result of losing his license is a, wonderfully, a wonderful premise. And it's done uh, with comedy. 
So I think it's something that people would like to see, and it, the script appealed to me immediately. I think also, as I was reading about your career, of course, I've followed it forever, but as I was reading about your career, every time something happened, you always seemed to be able to pivot, which is what I thought you were going to say about why this script appealed to you so much. Well, that too. That's very interesting. And when you say pivot, you know, if you allow yourself, if something terrible happens, you can't do anything about it. Uh, you got to accept what happened with it, death, life, injury, uh, failure. There's nothing you can do about it. You have to accept it and go, uh, you know, where the path leads you. Mm -hmm. And, and uh, so it doesn't seem startling to me, but apparently it startles other people. You've got to be flexible enough right. in life to go with the flow. And that's what you mean by pivoting. And, and uh, yes, I did. Yes, I do. It, well, you used to have a motto, and I wonder if it's still true, that work equals work. I look at your resume now, you're as busy now as you've ever been yeah. at a point in your life when it might seem like you might want to slow down, enjoy well, the sunshine behind you. Well, the sunshine's behind me. I'm not, <laughs> uh, you know, I guess I'm looking at mountains and things. But uh, with your interview is interfering with my getting on a horse, you know, so... <laughs> <laughs> I, 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 I ride horses a lot mornings, you know, mostly I work in the afternoons. I try to make it that way. Uh, I have a fast car that when I can get out there, I drive quickly. I mean, it's, um, it's, it's, uh, just, uh, I I'm doing the work, but I'm also enjoying it enormously. You have worked with both Gene Smart and Christopher Lloyd before. What kind of shorthand does that give you on a set? Uh, there's no shorthand. And why would I want to shorthand Gene Smart or a wonderful Christopher Lloyd? Um, no, it's it, people have worked a lot. It's work. It's like, it's great. Here we are. We're, we're, we're saying some words that are wonderful and, and we're getting paid for it. And it's a nice day. And, uh, and what did you do last night? And all that kind of thing. It's, it, it isn't, it isn't uh, the be all and end all of life uh, uh, working. It should be a joy. Two people have, have been, uh, have been given words that in most cases, or in some cases are, are wonderful to say. Uh, and if they're not, you joke about it. I uh, worked with an actress. Uh, uh, we were supposed to be in front of the curtain before the curtain went up. And when the curtain goes up, we're in front of uh, talking to the audience. And she, uh, so now opening night, she's got a hold of my hand. We're standing in front of the curtain and she whispers to me, are we in a disaster? <laughs> and the curtain goes up and now we got to play. And we were, it closed shortly thereafter. Uh, so people have a sense of humor about what they're doing. If they're, you know, if they're knowledgeable enough. You're listening to my interview with William Shatner, star of Senior Moment, on VOD next week. And I guess that goes a long way to keeping it exciting and to keeping it uh, something that you can look forward to. Yeah, exactly. Well, I look forward to coming to work each day. There have been times when there have been uh, tyrants of one kind or another who have made life miserable. But, uh, you know, again, you, you become uh, philosophical about that because sooner or later, you know, it's going to end. Mm -hmm. That's right. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, a, a film like this, I think, will have a universal appeal. When I first started uh, watching it, I thought, well, this is th this would be great for, you know, my parents generation. But I think that there's a universal message here about how if you never give up, 
if you keep looking, you'll find the things that will ultimately make you happy. And that's not a message for someone who is in their 70s or their 60s or their 50s or their 40s. That is a universal message, I think, for everyone. I got a, a, an 18-year-old uh, who's stuck in Rome. Uh, uh, she was, went there to learn Italian, and all of a sudden, they closed everything up. And she is really sad and upset about it. And exactly what you said is what I told her last night. You know, go with the flow. Learn, uh, uh, learn Italian in the in the hotel room, and when you're done, you'll 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 have learned more than you would have in the three weeks that you're locked up. I mean, just go with the flow. That's and that's that's a universal message. Uh, exactly. That's what you tell a baby crawling on the uh, on the floor. Come on, baby, go with the flow. <laughs> and you get to drive a very cool car. I know. That- that Porsche is very cool. I so cool. I, I uh, tried to make off of it, but it turned out it was being rented or something. Mm. Yeah, that's one of those things I often hear actors have clauses in their contract where you get to keep your costume keep the, or whatever. Wardrobe. Yeah. Uh, Glenn Ford, another Canadian actor. You remember him? Yeah, Glenn Ford had a clause in his contract about keeping things, and he used to back a truck up <laughs> to the set when the movie was over and load things on and he'd take it to his house. And a couple of days later, the studio would send a truck and take a bat. And this was an ongoing thing. That was at least the, what I heard about Glenn Ford. So imagine if he was driving this car, I what know. he would have done. <laughs> now, is this a movie that has a message to it? We've talked about that a little bit, or is it just something to sit back and, and enjoy? You know, in everything I've done, uh, people uh, will ask at some point or other, is there a message here? And the famous line is, if you want to send a message, uh, send it, uh, well, in this day and age, send it by... Uh, e- email or WhatsApp email. or something. Yeah. yeah, because a message is boring. But a premise uh, is not, and a premise of as you just uh, uh, said uh, about going forward and, and, uh, and accepting what life throws at you, that's a universal message. Go with it, uh, read, uh, play, uh, listen to music. Uh, the, the, the wonderment of what human beings have done on earth exceed the bewilderment of the harm we've done. So go with the flow. That was William Shatner. Find Senior Moment on VOD next week. My thanks to William Shatner, or James T. Kirk, as I like to call him, Jessica Bruder and Bob Wells of Nomadland, the great Daniel Lanois. Find Heavy Sun wherever you buy fine music. Most of all, though, my biggest thanks goes to you for listening. I'm Richard Krause. Stay happy, stay healthy, stay safe, and we'll talk again soon.